Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We have a great show for you today, but first, I want to ask you for a favor. Please subscribe to this podcast, if you don't already, that is. Also, take a second to rate and review our show in your podcast app, especially if you're a regular listener. That will help other people find us. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's get started. Our guest today is joining us from an exotic location, Tahiti. He's Ryan Levinson, a longtime athlete who's done everything from triathlons to competitive sailing to surfing. He also has a genetic disorder called FSH muscular dystrophy, or FSHD, which weakens his muscles over time. After he got that diagnosis, Ryan and his wife Nicole decided to sell everything, buy a boat, and sail off to the South Pacific while he was still able to do it. And you'll also hear from Nicole in this interview. They set sail just over five years ago, and they post about their adventures on YouTube and social media. Ryan and Nicole, welcome to Health Now. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Glad to be here. Yeah, from all the way from the other side of the world, we're grateful to talk to you. My first question for you is, when you first had symptoms of FSHD, what were they like, and when did you know that you needed to see a doctor? Yeah, you know, that's interesting that the first symptoms in retrospect started kind of towards my senior year in high school, I was a competitive cyclist and my whole thing, I was going to go pro. I was on a pro development team and I was the state champion at the time and doing well internationally. And this was going to be my career. But all of a sudden I started having trouble in some of the kind of more elite level races. And, and I didn't know what was going on at the time. I just thought I lost my mojo or something. So stopped cycling, moved to California, got way into surfing. And after a little while, probably my second or third year of college, I started noticing it was getting harder to paddle surfboards, and and uh, I started noticing changes in my body. The shoulder started slouching forward a little bit, so my friends would tease me for trying to stand tall, and one of my pecs started disappearing, and and um, pretty soon, especially once the pec disappeared, I decided I better get this checked out. And the, the first doctor I went to, he says, well, you know, this could be a whole host of things. He goes, have you ever had any hard impacts? And I'm thinking like, you know, every day I'm skateboarding and falling off of ramps and, you know, like. <laughs> so which, like, which heart impact are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he says, you know, that can be, that can cause nerve damage, which can lead to muscle atrophy. So just watch it. And if it continues, come back. And about a year later, sure enough, it continued and the other pecs started disappearing. And I went back and they poked and prodded and dissected and sliced and all the rest and then came back with the diagnosis. What was your reaction when they told that to you? You know, obviously it's a shock when you hear something like that. At the time when I was diagnosed, I just discovered kind of, um, you know, I was kind of wandering aimlessly through college and wasn't really interested in, in any of the topics until I discovered outdoor recreation, recreation administration. So that was a lot of, of wilderness philosophy and, and a minimum impact and leadership. And, you know, every weekend I was doing rock tra climbing trips and canoeing trips and surfing every day and everything was outdoors and very active. And I get this diagnosis and I said, well, what is that? You know, and he says, well, it's this disease and your muscles are going to disappear, you know, throughout your life. And I was like, you know, so my, my reaction immediately was, well, how is this going to impact all of these things, this lifestyle that I love so much? And so I asked him straight up before he'd even fully confirmed the diagnosis. I said, well, here's what I do. What, what does it mean for that? And he says, well, all of that is unrealistic. This is, this is almost a verbatim quote, by the way. He goes, 
He goes, that's all unrealistic. You should quit all of that and learn something useful like key punch. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So when you say, what's my reaction? My initial reaction was, how is this going to impact the lifestyle that I love living? What makes me so healthy and feel alive? And, you know, just sort of the way I'm kind of chosen to move through this world. And then immediately followed by, you know, if I, if I can't do that, what does that mean? So, so it was sort of the reaction to the diagnosis and the reaction to the consequences were sort of two different things. That is such a blow, especially when you're, I mean, you're a relatively young person at that time. You had your whole life ahead of you, essentially, or one version of it. When you were diagnosed, did the doctors tell you what you might expect your life to look like, essentially? And obviously, they told you that it was a bad idea to pursue those activities that you loved, but did they give you any other details about what might be in store? No, you know, it's surprising. Back then, well, I, sh I should back up. The doctor I had at the time, it's, it's usually one doctor who does a diagnosis like this. He's brilliant. He's an incredible neurologist, but he doesn't have the best bedside manner. So any of your, any of the doctors that are listening, <laughs> you know, it's, he, he, he was very clinical. He sat down, he pulled out a little tape recorder and he literally dictated the notes of the exam. And that's how he, he broke the news to me. And then I said, well, what does this mean other than quitting uh, all the stuff I, I'm doing and learning key punch? And he's like, well, let's have that discussion after we've confirmed this with a further biopsy. And I said, well, okay. So I went home and went online, of course. And the internet was brand new back then. I don't even think WebMD existed yet. It would have been really <laughs> useful at the time. So all I could find were these really kind of rough, super clinical, technical papers about FSHD. And they were all very grim, you know, that eventually you'd lose the strength to even close your eyes or to smile certainly assisted daily living, no treatment, no cure. They didn't even know the mechanism of the disease back then. There's nothing about how to sort of manage your life in faces of a challenge like that. There were certainly no other examples of people with FSH who were living a life even remotely similar to mine. So I was basically starting from scratch. And, you know, I went back to the doctor and I said, well, okay, now you've got your biopsy. We have the confirmation. What now? And he's like, well, you shouldn't be very active. You should limit your physical activity because if you're highly active, active, you can actually tear down your muscles a little bit. And that's how uh, it's a very rough way of describing how a healthy person builds muscle. They tear it up a little bit through exercise, and then it grows back stronger, kind of oversimplified. But he says, in my case, I would tear apart the muscle a little bit, and it wouldn't be able to regrow. So if I stayed, hmm. yeah, if I stayed very active, I'd have this catastrophic muscle loss. I, I pictured myself like a quivering ball of jello when he said it, you know, and then I said, well, okay, and what if I don't do anything? And he goes, well, you'll continue to lose the muscle. It'll just happen more slowly. So it took me about a nanosecond to decide, well, if I'm going to lose the muscle anyway, I'm going to lose it doing, you know, living the life that I love. I said, okay, thank you. I uh, went home and decided to kind of almost triple the efforts, you know, from what I was doing before, you know, withdrew from school and, and just went uh, incredibly active, moved to Hawaii to surf the big waves and Fiji and uh, started leading trips every weekend into the wilderness and teaching all these different sports and discovered that, you know, while I was still losing muscle, it wasn't at this extremely accelerated rate. Maybe the sick muscles were, but the muscles that hadn't yet been affected were actually, if not getting healthier, at least maintaining. And in the meantime, certainly mentally, I was doing much better and learning how to adapt sort of the way that I did things to take advantage of my strengths and to mitigate my weaknesses. And, uh, you know, I think that that is what sort of laid the foundation for my life from then till now. And I want to ask you about that more specifically. So I think for a lot of people getting that kind of diagnosis and realizing how much of an impact it would have on their life could lead them to a serious uh, bout of depression, at least for a time. But that didn't happen for you, it sounds like. Or did you go anything through like that? And if not, how was it that you were able to sort of move through that period? 
Yeah, that's an excellent question. And and I agree with you. I think that what I experienced, while the specifics are unique, the impacts and sort of the grieving process is probably similar for a lot of people. And a lot of people have told me that over the years. And I think for me, the thing that really kind of helped me get through that, and, and frankly, it wasn't like, you know, somebody who loses a leg or is in a really bad accident or has a singular disease where they have the diagnosis and then they sort of build from there. When you have a disease like this, that's progressive, I'm constantly going through that even now where I'll have a level of ability and then in a short period of time I will lose that and then I have to readjust to that new level so and, I, and every time I go through the grieving process I've just become really really good at it and I think the thing that kind of if I had to put it into one phrase it would be that I, I you know I can't choose what happens in this case I have no control over that but I do have control over how I respond so I focus on on that sort of side of the equation and what does that mean okay this is my new level of ability what can I do with this new level of ability how can I improve it and then go forward from there. What is the treatment? Are there any medicines that you take or any physical therapy routines you have to adhere to? Or is it just sort of you know, take each day as it comes. There's no medical treatment. There's some stuff that's kind of going into phase two trials, but it doesn't look really promising at this point. And frankly, I kind of stopped going to the doctors and so forth because they just look and say, yeah, you still have it, you know, <laughs> take care of yourself. And, you know, <laughs> I finally eventually realized, you know, it's kind of the closest analog, if that's the right word, that I can come up with is sort of people who are who are getting older, like really getting older and an older age where their bodies are starting to get weaker and they're starting to have kind of aches and pains and due to the imbalances in strength and, and other things, inability to recover from effort and so forth. And a lot of what applies to them or even to fully able-bodied young people applies to me. So I, I eat what I think is fairly healthy. I stay away from all, you know, basically all uh, refined foods foods, processed foods for sure, certainly simple sugars, I eat lots of vegetables, lots of fish out here, <laughs> exercise regularly, but not too extreme. I practice yoga every day for the last 15 years. And it's more of a relaxing meditative practice rather than, a, you know, twist myself into a pretzel and right. sweat kind of practice, you know, and, right. and those things combined with meditation and sort of stress management and getting plenty of rest and recovery. I mean, this is stuff that works for everybody. But for me, I think more than the average, it's extreme. If I don't have enough rest, or if I overtrain a little bit, or if I eat unhealthy, I have a very pronounced loss of ability until I recover from that to the point where my legs will buckle and I'll fall to the floor. But if I do it right, I can go out and surf, you know, 10 foot waves on a kiteboard all day long and be fine. Wow. You're pretty much just taking care of the basics the way everyone does, but it... <laughs> it means that much more for you, uh, for your health. It has that much more of an impact. Yeah. You know, I think it probably has just as much of an impact for really everybody. It's just, I think that a lot of people have the ability to sort of compensate for the cracks in the foundation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So they can get through the day, but if they just took the time and, and put the focus on and the mindfulness, frankly, on taking care of those basics, they'd be amazed at how much more they can accomplish, not just physically, but mentally and sort of energetically and all the above, because they've, they're standing on, on firm ground, you know? I want to talk about this trip that you are on right now, which sounds absolutely incredible. Where did this idea come from? Was it your idea or Nicole, was it your idea? No, it was not my idea. It <laughs> <laughs> took about six months of communication talking between the two of us before I finally was like, felt okay with doing this trip and leaving the job and leaving the house. And I don't know, there was a lot involved. And so it took a little while for me to get comfortable. Yeah, for me, 
you know, I've been sailing my whole life and through college, I was actually an adjunct professor of sailing for San Diego State, which is a fancy way of saying I taught PE class that involved sailing. And, <laughs> you know, and then later I, you know, I competed on the U.S. sailing national team for a little while and used to captain a, a large sailboat. So it's kind of, it's been in my blood for a long time. And always I would sit on these boats, you know, at times, especially when I was alone and just kind of putting things away. And, and I would dream about just kind of pointing it you know, over the horizon and finding out what's over, what's there, you know, just going and just sailing over the horizon, just, just, just for the sake of discovery. And it started with smaller trips up and down the coast, sailed alone up to Santa Barbara and back from San Diego and through the Channel Islands and then which are off of the coast of California. And then Nicole and I started talking and we were debating whether I should sail alone to Hawaii as part of a race or whether we should sail down into Mexico. And then finally, we decided it sounded much more fun to sail into Mexico and <laughs> surf and explore. And then that sort of said, well, why stop in Mexico if we have this boat that's capable and we have the ability and the skills and I'm certainly not getting any stronger. So, you know, it, it really became about doing it while we had the chance to do it. You know, I'm losing the ability and the only thing that was holding us back at that point, we had the equipment, we had the resources. The only thing that was holding us back was ourselves, fear. And I think that's true for a lot of people. So we were able to put that aside and basically sail into, into our dreams. I mean, to, not to sound cheesy, but literally we just said, what would happen if we didn't have any fear and actually did what we're dreaming of doing. And that was the beginning of it. And here we are. That's incredible. I need to back up and ask, how did you guys meet? Did you know each other before your diagnosis, Ryan, or did you meet afterwards? Before, she picked me up in class because I was super hot. I did not. (laughs) (laughs) No, he he hunted me down in class. He figured out who I was and approached me, and that was 24 years ago, and he had not had his diagnosis yet. Nope. I was just super cocky little surfer kid back then. (laughs) Nicole, were you also like an, a same, you know, outdoorsy, very active person with similar interests? I didn't have the water interests. I didn't have a sailing background. I was actually growing up. Um, I did a lot of skiing with my family and I was a competitive figure skater. And oh. then when I met Ryan, I was just a gym girl, basically. And uh, he kind of opened up the water world for me. And it's just been progressing ever since. So how do you guys spend your days? And What have some of your favorite places or experiences been on this trip so far? Wow. You know, we decided a while ago that we're going to let the weather guide us completely. So we picked kind of like we both love the ocean and interacting with the ocean. And the ways that we do that primarily are through surfing, kiteboarding, and then diving, you know, free diving, holding your breath and going down underwater. So we look at the weather and we say, okay, there's not going to be any wind for a while and there's not going to be any waves, but it's really sunny. So there's going to be some great diving. What is within a few days to a week long sail from here that has really good diving? And then we go there, you know, and then, okay, now the surf getting bigger, but there's no wind. Let's go find a surf spot. Okay. Now the, it's really windy. Okay. Get the kites out. And the sort of that guides us sort of from a navigation perspective. And then it's just filling in the gaps around there. So anywhere we go, we're making the videos for two afloat, our YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. And obviously we're maintaining the boat and taking care of each other and trying to improve our ability to do all these things. And that's really it. It's not, there's, I'm trying to make it sound more fancy than it is, but basically (laughs) we just, you know, and it's a tremendous amount of work. Maintaining the boat is easily a 40 hour a week job. And then the two afloat channel is is really our full-time source of income primarily. Mm-hmm. So between those two things, there's not it's not like we're in the water, you know, kiteboarding all day long every day. <laughs> 
That would be incredible, but I can see how you would have to <laughs> do a lot of work to just keep yourself living and, and stay afloat like you are and stay on course. Saltwater is not a friendly environment <laughs> to ah. boats yeah, to <laughs> or equipment. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, Nicole's amazing. Like she'll there. There's places where just to get a dozen eggs, it requires like you know four hour hitchhiking over a mountain, and on the way people stop to feed the goats or pick coconuts or whatever, and nobody speaks the same language, you know. And, <laughs> Are you planning to stay in the South Pacific or are you heading somewhere else after this? Don't know. What are we doing, Nicole? (laughs) (laughs) We take it, honestly, we take it year by year, which is kind of, we talk about how we're feeling physically, how Ryan is doing. And we just, we we don't have an answer for that because we don't know. Yeah, that's, Nicole nailed it. It it really, a lot of it has to do with my physical ability. And, you know, as it, as I lose more and more strength, it becomes more and more, the calculation changes. The waves out here are not soft, fuzzy, you know, friendly, happy waves. Waves. They're they're heavy, kind of. They, they have a little bit. They have a lot more power. They're in the middle of the ocean, and they nail these really shallow, jaggedy coral reefs. And as I lose the ability to swim and sort of, you know, move safely or more safely through those environments, we we have to adjust. It reminds me of actually when I worked on the ambulance, which was a job I loved. I started getting harder and harder to do CPR. I could still pass all the physical exams needed in terms of functional qualifications for the job. But as it became harder to do CPR, I had to make the decision that it it wasn't worth potentially risking somebody else's well-being. So I pulled myself out of the field even before I would have been disqualified otherwise. And I feel like that's the sort of the same mindset I'm trying to approach out here. Just at this case, it's my own life and frankly, Nicole's that is as at risk if I get the the calculus wrong. So, you know, that's the long answer to we don't know yet, but it's we don't know yet because we're dealing with the variable that it's nonlinear. So where are you now? Describe what you're looking at right now, where you are. Okay, we are off of an island called Moorea, which is a, a small little island about a day sail away from Tahiti. There's only one other sail boat anchored near us and no other boats in sight. There's beautiful green mountains on one side and on the other side, you just see the waves breaking on the reef. We're anchored in really shallow water. So the water's this like vibrant kind of green sort of emerald, emerald turquoise. Yeah. Let Nicole do the colors, color, and actually, it's the same color as the little camera light telling us that the camera's on on the computer. <laughs> you know, the wind's howling right now, so there's they call them moutons out here in French. They're little sheep, the little white caps all over the lagoon. The clouds are low, and they're sort of shrouding the these jagged volcanic mountains. And you know, later we're gonna pump up the our north kites and use them to kind of touch this wind to to glide across the moutons and get out into the surf and you know, kind of connect to all of these all of these elements that are raging all around us and very much looking forward to that. Brian, you've written before about feeling like you have two voices, the public one where you talk about how you live in the face of the challenges of having muscular dystrophy and the private one where you have a lot of emotional pain related to the condition. How do you balance those two voices in everyday life? I would say that they're starting to kind of both the gap between those is narrowing every day, especially as I lose more and more ability. It sort of becomes more and more, I don't want to say evident, but that's the best word I can think of right now. I, I sort of, I almost feel like I'm in the end game a little bit. And again, I think this might be something that people who are in very old age start to feel in some ways when it comes to physical ability. They just kind of, you kind of just say, well, this is this is what it is and I can't really do anything about it other than mitigate it the best I can. My new normal, I would say, is to sort of, you know, it sounds really cheesy to say, follow your heart. And I think that oversimplifies it. But what I've learned 
from this trip and from the experience of having this disease more than anything else is that when you feel like something is right, you know, right for you or that you're, you know, sort of called to do it, not necessarily in some, you know, religious meaning, but you know, there's not really language for this that I'm aware of. But when, when you feel driven in a certain direction, do it. Because if you do, then, and you do it mindfully and you do it with intent and without super being caught up in the results of did you achieve it or not, but moving in that direction, that's the key. And as long as I do that, I can deal with the loss of muscle because I've truly maximized sort of the time that I've had, not not in a performance standpoint, but in a maybe lack of regret standpoint for, you know, not having a better way to put it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think a lot of my angst and depression and stuff early on in this disease was, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose the ability to this, that, and the other thing. And then certainly there was a big period of time in the middle where I felt panicked, like I better do all this stuff while I can. And, and eventually I learned to surrender to all of that and just truly the only thing that holds you back is fear. I was afraid to do this stuff, to sail across the Pacific or to sort of commit myself to my athletic passions. And because what does this mean? And how are people going to judge me? And would I be able to to make enough money to support myself and my, my share of our relationship and, and all the rest? And, and what I found is that it's, it's the opposite is the problem. It's when you don't do those things, you should be afraid of not doing it because that's when you're going to be faced with, everyone's going to be faced with loss of ability at some point or loss, change in circumstances. And if that happens and you realize you've been compromising your life all along and compromising sort of your dreams and what you're driven to do, that's when you're hit with the depression and the regret and all the rest. Well, Ryan and Nicole, it's been wonderful to talk to you and we wish you all the best on your journey in the South Pacific and best of luck. And here's hoping for good weather for the rest of your journey. Carrie, y'all are awesome. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I was wondering if she'd catch that. Thank you, so thank you. Thank you for having us on. An absolute pleasure. Today's tweak of the week, spend some quality time with yourself. We often equate being alone with being lonely, but that doesn't have to be the case. Experts say it can boost your mood, relax you, and lower your stress levels. The difference seems to be choosing to be alone rather than just winding up that way. So block some time in your calendar and take yourself out to a museum or sign up for that yoga class you've been thinking about. You could even stay home and make that awesome new recipe, then binge watch the latest series. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you can tune in next time. Until then, keep up with WebMD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bye for now.